If you would open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, I'm going to read for us chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, a vision of the Son of Man. Hear the word of God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have heard, that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Our culture is changing. It's becoming more challenging to live out loud for Jesus Christ. If you've been around for a while, you would be aware of what I'm talking about. There's been dramatic change in our culture over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. There are growing pressures in our culture to keep our views on Jesus to ourself. There's confusion of what we can and cannot say in public, in our workplace, governance, schools. And when there's this kind of confusion, it opens the door to fear. And for those of us raising children and grandchildren to take the Lord Jesus seriously in every area of our lives, what does our changing culture mean for us? What does our changing culture mean for our children in the next generation of Christians in America? When you have questions like this about the future, what, what, is, what does this mean? Things are changing the way they are. Things are getting harder. What does this mean? When we're asking questions like that, it, 
you become ripe to fear. Fear the loss of relationships. You, you, you start living out loud for Jesus and you start fearing losing relationships of those who disagree with you. It's, it's real. Many of us in this room have already lost significant relationships because of our following Jesus. We, we fear the loss of reputation that our standing in the world's eyes gets diminished when they realize we actually believe in the risen Jesus. There's the fear of losing remuneration because of, if I'm a follower at work and I stand for Jesus and I've got to say no to things, there's the fear of loss, not getting a promotion, getting passed over, Fear of remuneration. There's, there's the fear of unrealized dreams because I am a follower of Jesus. I may not be able to live the American life. It's real. Isaac Newton in Amazing Grace. There are dangers, toils, and snares for us to walk through on our way. In Acts 14.22, the Apostle Paul, speaking to early disciples, tells them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul to Titus, who is, who is doing work in the church of Ephesus at the time, he says to him, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will suffer hardship. And then, of course, there's the words of Jesus, John 16.33, in the world you will have tribulation. Hardship on account of Jesus. But then he says, but take heart, I have, I have overcome the world. And this morning, that's what you need to hear. Take heart. Fear not. No matter what happens in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years in our country, no matter what happens, we fear not. And here's why. Because our Jesus is the risen, radiant, and reigning Son of Man right here, right now. He's with us. This morning, you need to hear these two words of encouragement from the lips of the risen Christ. Fear not. Fear not. In order to help us fear not, you need to hear what John heard in this passage. In order to fear not, you need to see what John saw in this passage. In order to fear not, you need to feel what John felt in this passage. Who he heard. Who he saw. Whose hand he felt when he was prostrate. And when you hear and see and feel you will find courage in your heart. Be 
because you've been reminded of the one who's risen, radiant, and reigning. So let's look to our Bibles. Let's hear what John hears. In chapter 1, verse 9, we learn that the Apostle John is on the island called Patmos. It was about 30 plus miles southwest of the western coast of Turkey. And he wasn't there on a vacation. He wasn't hanging out on a condo. He was in exile. For what? Verse 9, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. God's word revealed through the testimony of Jesus. That's why he was on the island of Patmos. You see, John was proclaiming Jesus as the exclusive, unrivaled, universal Lord of all. And it was a direct contradiction to the gospel according to Domitian, who is the Roman emperor, emperor of the time and who called himself, quote-unquote, Lord and God, quote-unquote, the everlasting king, who had commanded all citizens and subjects in the Roman Empire to dash a little incense on an altar, and as they're doing it in this worship center unto Domitian, they were to say, Caesar is Lord. And here is John, exiled to Patmos, on account of proclaiming the exclusive lordship of Jesus. That's why John begins, and I, John, your brother and fellow partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, in the patient endurance that is in Jesus. He himself is suffering tribulation for Jesus. He's in exile on this rocky outcropping called Patmos. No Dairy Queens there. He's a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus. He is seeking to endure the suffering that he is experiencing for Jesus. And so if you were one of these seven churches and you were in the precarious position that they were in, some of your members are already being persecuted for Jesus. Do you know what this means? This guy's got instant street cred. He's writing as a fellow sufferer. As a brother who's enduring the hardship himself. You want to tune your ears to someone like that. He's not a recent seminary grad. He's been following Jesus for 60 plus years at this point. He's the one called the beloved disciple. He is the one that reclined on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. He is the one Jesus himself entrusts his earthly mother to take care of. That's this John. And he's exiled. He's writing to the seven churches. And he's writing to them for a reason. We learn in verse 10, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That's a reference to Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. Christians in the first century would gather on that day, and he was in the spirit. It's describing an awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So on this particular Lord's day, while on Patmos, exile, the Holy Spirit impresses on John something profound. 
Holy Spirit was enabling John to hear something. Verse 10, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. It would have been like that the 10.30 a.m. Saturday kind of tornado siren sound. That kind of pronouncement. And, and what John hears right here, you've got to understand, it's not just in his head. He really hears it. What does his voice say? Verse 11, it says two things. Write what you see in a book. And the book is the book of Revelation. Write it down. And then he says, send it. Send it to the seven churches. And then he names them. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. Not Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Laodicea. Now, that word seven is, in the Jewish mind, they would think very quickly of this sense of completeness and fullness. And so, these seven churches are a complete representative of the fullness of the entire church. They represent us. All of Jesus' blood-bought. Now, what you need to also know about these seven churches is that they are on a circuit, All seven churches were on a road that connected them all, about 30, 35 miles from each one. And what would happen is messages would be sent out. And so the the ordering of these churches are actually ordered according to where they are on the circuit. So John is said, being told to write in a book what you see and send it to the churches. Here's what this means for us. John was descended to the first century church in Ephesus. And these other six churches, and even back then, our great God knew that this book would end up in this church in Kenosha in the 21st century. What he sees is for us. Whose voice is this? Whose trumpet-like voice is this? We've begun to hear what John hears. Now let's see what John sees. Verse 12. John turns to see the voice that was speaking to him. All of us would have been done, done the same thing. If we were on Patnos and we heard this voice, we'd be like, what is that? And John would never forget what he saw, and we are to never forget what he saw. This is designed to grab your imagination. This is designed, what we're about to read, is to capture you, to to press an image on your mind for you not to forget. And the first thing that John sees are seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands. This is interesting. What are these seven golden lampstands? Well, Jesus is about to tell us, but, but what you need to understand is when, when, it, when a Jewish person would hear lampstand, golden lampstand, they're thinking temple. They've gone, they're imagining God's temple. There was a, an elaborate menorah in the temple. 
But these are seven individual lampstands. And what Jesus says in verse 20, he explains that mystery to us in verse 20. Did you pick up on that? If you look to, to verse 20, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's what's going on. This voice tells John to write, send it to the seven churches. John turns to see the voice, and then he sees seven lampstands, the seven churches that he's going to be sending this, the letters to, the book to. Now, what we also read is someone is in the midst of these lampstands. Verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, I know your elementary school grammar taught you that when you read, see that word like, one like a son of man, you want to start thinking, okay, there's a comparison going on here. That's not what John is doing. This is not a comparison. John's not saying, this one I saw had the form of one like a son of, that's not what he's saying. John is quoting Daniel 7.13. He is seeing the, quote, one like a son of man. The one who would come to the ancient of days. In the ancient of days, God the Father would would give him dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom without end. That's the one like a son of man. That's who John sees. We're to be thinking Daniel 7, 13 through 14. This is the son of man. This is the risen Jesus. What we notice here is, is something very profound, and we can cruise over it really quick. It's important to see where he is. This one, like a son of man, the risen Jesus, is in the midst of the lampstands. He's among the churches. The risen son of man, who's been given dominion, glory, and everlasting kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, that's Daniel 7.13. He's in the middle of his churches. It should make you think of Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. Go make disciples. And he closes with the promise, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So here's the significance for us. Jesus, the risen son of man, the, the king of God's everlasting kingdom of grace, he is with us right here and right now. He was with those seven churches in the first century, and he's with Christ the King Church in the 21st century. But there's more. John's eyes focus on what the risen Son of Man is wearing. Verse 13 He's wearing, he's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The long robe was most likely kind of a priestly vestment garb. And so you're thinking, okay, he is a priestly representative. And we all know that priests back in the day of the temple, they maintained the temple. 
and they mediated God's presence. The golden sash, some commentators think that represents Christ's high priestly role, and it, it could, but what I want to point out is something like this. It's made of gold. It's a gold sash. It's not, it's not like a sash around the waist that you see those guys in Spain running with the bulls. It's not one of those things. It's, it's, a, it's a sash that draped over your shoulder, came over your chest, and was clasped at the waist. It would, you couldn't get around the goldness of it. And it wasn't a dull gold, it would have sparkled. It grabs your attention, it grabbed John's attention. The goldness of it. When we get to the end of the book of Revelation, and we start getting glimpses of the new Jerusalem that comes down, do you know what it's made of? It's made of gold. In Revelation 15, 6, angels come to pour out the plagues. And do you know what they're wearing? White linens with a sash across their chest of gold. It's, it's making us think that this one, he is, he's, he's from the new Jerusalem. He's in our midst. As our high priest, maintaining his temple, us, the new temple of God, and mediating God's presence. But there's more. John moves from what he is wearing to what his body is radiating. His Sparkly hair. The hairs of his head, verse 14, were white, like white wool. That's white. Like snow. It's a different kind of white. The difference between wool white and snow white is when it snows and you walk out your front door and you see a fresh snow in the sunside, Sunshine, what happens? It's like a field of diamonds. They glitter, sparkle. There's a brilliance. This white was a brilliant white. And what you need to know is that this is actually a reference to something, an attribute of the Ancient of Days from Daniel chapter 7, who had hair white as wool. So is John saying right here that the Son of Man is the Ancient of Days? He's not saying that. What John is seeing and communicating is that this Son of Man amidst the lampstands is sharing in one of the essential attributes of, of the Ancient of Days. Wisdom, ageless wisdom. It's a vivid way to communicate the deity of Jesus in our midst. He's got sparkling hair. Brilliant. And in his eyes, verse 14, he's got fire eyes. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, it's behind this is a reference to Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. Look it up later. But what you need to note is this. His eyes were radiating light. 
And the inference is his eyes see into darkness. He knows all because he sees all. Here's where I want to take a step outside of our passage and help you anticipate something. This vision of Jesus that we have in 9 through 20, it's going to show up again. But in parts, the seven letters that he sends to the seven churches that are chapter 2 and chapter 3 all point back to one of these attributes in this vision. It's all connected. And what we see in the seven letters of the seven churches, follow with me now, okay? His flaming eyes, chapter 2, verse 2, to Ephesus, I know your works, Jesus, to Ephesus. 2.9, to Smyrna, I know your tribulation. 2.13, to Pergamum, I know where you dwell. 2.19, let me find it, Theotira, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. 3.1, Sardis, I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. To Philadelphia in 3.8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. The church of Laodicea, 15, 3.15, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. He sees all those flaming eyes, those flaming eyes. He sees and knows every nook and cranny of every one of his people's lives in every nook and cranny of every church that he's purchased with his blood. And what does fire do? Fire purifies. I am the official splinter remover of splinters in my children's feet. It's a fearful operation. Because I start by putting a needle over an open flame. To purify it, to heal my kid. Jesus is in our midst, looking on us with eyes of fire, seeking to purify his people. Now, here's the connection. Revelation is a series of judgments, but judgment begins with the house of God. That's the seven letters of the seven churches. He sees and knows. And so, brother and sister, if you are in this room and you're secretly hoping nobody finds about about this secret lifestyle, sinful lifestyle that you are living, you are already seen. He already sees all that you are. You're fully exposed before his fire eyes. And that's making you feel a little undone or feel a little exposed, or maybe a little fearful. That's not bad. Jesus has a word for you. Moving on in verse 15, not only does he have fire eyes, he has glowing feet. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Bronze was a metal that used in that day, was used for many weapons, making of weapons. And so there's this hint of warrior-ness about this son of man in the midst of the churches. But we also know that 
that bronze feet is depicts stability, permanence, resilience. All things have been put under the feet of King Jesus. He's ruling over all, despite what it may look like. And they are aglow. That's what happens when you put bronze in a heated furnace. It glows. Bronze feet aglow. His radiating light of hair. His fiery eyes. It's all radiating light. And he's in the midst of the churches. He's in the midst, he's right here, right now, with us. This is our Jesus. John's pulling back the curtain so we can see him. And then his Niagara voice in verse 15, like the roar of many waters. Now, if you take a ride on the Maid of the Mist, and you get up close and personal to Niagara Falls, you're going to quickly find out that if you're with somebody, you're going to have a communication problem. Because that mighty cataracts produces a volume of sound that drowns out everything. The Niagara voice of Jesus is to drown out every other voice. Back in the day, it was the voice of the emperor Domitian. In our day, there's a lot of voices that his voice must drown out. His voice demands our attention. And John would have felt the thunder of his voice. There's a loudness theme in Revelation. We saw it in, Revel in the trumpet voice in verse 10. It is overwhelming. In his right hand, verse 16, seven stars. He has star hand. And you know what stars are. They're brilliant. You see them sparkling at night. What are these stars? Well, Jesus shows us that mystery in verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Angels. In right hand in our Bibles is often used to refer to authority and power, dominion. And so the risen, radiating Son of Man, who's reigning right now, has in his right hand the angels of the seven churches. He's saying, I got him. I'm ruling over him. They do my bidding. He commands his angels to obey, and they obey. Now, what it appears here is that Jesus has assigned specific angels to specific churches. And so the implication is Christ the King Church has an angel. Now, I'm not sure when you hear that, you start getting goosebumps. What John is doing is he, he's, he's pulling back the curtain to how things really are. He's helping us see the unseen, the, the spiritual world with 
angels and demons. And he's helping us to see, yes, there are angels of the churches doing the bidding of the Lord Jesus. We're being given a glimpse of the unseen spiritual world. And, and if you were in the precarious position of a church facing tribulation, this is really good news. Jesus is in control. And it also reminds us that our battle, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces and powers in the heavenly places. So what we see here is the risen Son of Man holding the angels in his right hand, and it would have been brilliant. Out of his mouth, verse 16, comes a sharp double-edged sword, his sword mouth. This is a different sword than Ephesians chapter 6. It's not the sword of the Spirit. That was a Roman soldier's sword. It was short, compact, meant for close fighting. This is a long sword, broad and heavy, and it was a symbol of power and irresistible judgment. And it's coming from his mouth. It's not in his right hand. It's from his mouth, declarative, decisive, powerful judgment coming from Jesus' lips. He's reigning over all. At the end of Revelation, in chapter 19, verse 21, all of those who oppose Jesus, who are unrepentant and are resistant to him, they come out to battle him one last time. And what we read in 21 is that Jesus slays them by this sword of his mouth, no more, with a word of decisive judgment. And then you read chapter 2, verse 16, to the church in Pergamum, therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's bringing the sword to a church. The Nicolaitans had been influencing them with false teaching. And Jesus is saying, get them out or I'm coming to get them out. Sober, weighty, profound. Does it make you feel a little uncomfortable? knowing that the risen Christ would wage war on one of his own churches, people in one of his own churches with the sword of his mouth. He is our great high priest who's dwelling in our midst and he's maintaining his temple, keeping it pure. We are his dwelling place. And this all, all climaxes in his face his son faced. It's the last feature that John sees. His, his face, the face of the risen, reigning, and radiating Son of Man. You know, he could not have been seeing this without squinting. It's described his face. like the sun shining in full strength. That's, that's the noonday sun. That's the sun at its zenith, at its greatest brightness. 
you don't want to look into the sun because of its brightness. But we also know number six, 25, may the Lord's face shine upon you. Bright, pure, holy brilliance that brings blessing on those who humble themselves below him. What John witnesses here is more like a multi-sensory experience. Brilliant hair, fire eyes, glowing feet, Niagara voice, star hands, sword mouth, sun face. It is a Christological rainbow when you take it all together, and it's meant to be awe-inspiring. We're to see what John saw. It should remind you of Daniel chapter 10, Ezekiel chapter 1, even the transfiguration in Matthew 17, where we read his face shone like the sun. It's his manifest glory. Who is this one who John has heard? Who is this one that he's turned to see? He is the risen, radiant, and reigning Son of Man, Jesus, and He is right here, and He is right now, and so you are not to fear. Now I want you to feel what John felt. In verse 17, we read, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. It would have popped your circuits too. He's so terrified, so overwhelmed, so undone, he falls and is very reminiscent of a lot of the parallel patches of a calling of a prophet, Isaiah 6, what what Kyle was talking about earlier, Ezekiel chapter 1, Daniel and Daniel 10. These men see God in his glory and they fall before him. You're not. You don't have to be a prophet to feel what all these prophets felt, overwhelming awe in the presence of the risen Christ. It's the proper response, the right response when you see him, when you sense him for who he is. The right response is to humble yourself before him. We're going to see in chapter 4 and chapter 5. All the living creatures who are before the throne are regularly falling down and worshiping the one on the throne, ancient of days, and the lamb who was slain, but now is alive. Falling down before him is a very appropriate response to who he truly is, who he fully is. When the curtain gets pulled back, When was the last time you humbled yourself and fell down before the risen, radiant, and reigning Son of Man who is right here and right now? Oh Lord, give us eyes to see and a heart to respond appropriately to you. 
But that's not all John felt. The same right hand that holds the seven stars, the same right hand that had a nail-pierced scar, that hand of the risen, radiant, reigning Christ in all of its authority, tenderly placed upon the prostrate John. And he says, I'm not sure if you said this with Niagara voice. Fear not. Fear not. Jesus is saying, you, not, you need not fear me, John. This is the same John that, remember, reclined on Jesus at the supper. We all need to hear these two words every day from the risen, radiant, reigning king. Fear not, I am here. We fear not this son of man because he's not against us. He is for us. If that hand that was nailed for us is the hand that holds the seven stars for us, we fear him not. He's with us for our good, even in the face of hardship. He's with us for our good. No need to compromise. And we fear not the tribulation we encounter for his name's sake. Here's why. He's the first and the last. It's another way of saying Alpha and Omega from chapter from 1 verse 8. He, he is the A to Z and everything in between. He's eternal deity, sovereign over all. He's the living one. As in the living God, the one and only, Isaiah 41, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 48, there is no other. In verse 18, he elaborates with his hand still on John. He says, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. John, John, I was crucified. You saw me crucified and I'm alive. See, I'm alive. Feel me, I'm alive. And his death and his resurrection are the basis for what he says next. And I have the keys of death and Haiti. I've been given dominion over everything. Keys are a symbol of authority. My principal at Roaring Brook Elementary School in Avon, Connecticut, man, did he have a set of impressive keys, and they were on a retractable wire attached to his belt, and he could get into any room in my elementary school because he had been entrusted with the right to open any door at any time. He'd been given a dominion. And Jesus has been given dominion. He's been given keys to the things that we fear most, death and Hades. In the face of tribulation, whether that's fierce persecution or faint persecution or a pressure to conform, that means compromise to Jesus, we do not fear because our risen king, he's alive, and he's right here, and he's right now, and jingle, jingle, he's got the keys.
Jesus comes full circle to John and still with his resurrected hand on John, he says in verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen. And what are those? The things that are, chapter 2 and 3. And those things that are to take place after this, the judgment cycles of sevens, which is in, starts in chapter, really, 6, but we'll start in chapter 4. Write them down, John. Send them out, John. Send them to Christ the King Church in the 21st century. Give them this for their good. To steal them, to strengthen them, to put courage in their hearts in light of not knowing what's going to happen. At this point, how do you think John felt? I mean, he had just folded like a cheap suit. By the end here, we can anticipate a kindling of courage, a strength to endure, because the hand on him is the hand of the risen, radiant, and reigning Jesus. We don't fear Jesus. We don't fear the tribulation that is to come, because our risen king is radiant right now, reigning right now, and with us right now. So Christ the King Church, hear the word of the Lord from Jesus. Fear not. I am with you. Let's pray. God in heaven, strengthen us, Lord. Give us courage to not be jerks, but to be the, the lampstand you've called us to be in this city at this time. Help us to endure because we're part of your kingdom, bought by your blood, and we live now for the glory of your name. Amen.